So I, I know that some of you have built houses before. Um, I, I know, Jason, you, did, you guys built that house, right? Next to your mom's place, pretty much. You built five houses from scratch, though. He built, he built five houses. That one down the road here was fantastic because, I've, ta- I've said this before, but Jason built that house around his dining room table. Most people build a house and then bring a dining table in. Jason built the table first, laid the slab, put the table in the, on the slab, and then built around it because the table was never going to get in otherwise. Did it ever come out that house? I did it in pieces. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know Richard also built a house from scratch. Well, Richard, there was a builder, but Richard was on site every day. So, you know, there's guys here who who built houses. Uh, We as a church have also been pretty good at building stuff. I think it was about three years ago that we built Vuyo's house. It was a a good couple of days out, um, digging trenches and pouring concrete and doing all that stuff. So that was good. And the, the amazing news on that is that it's still standing. Um, that's like really impressive for us. And our church as a whole has not just built houses, but we've also built ooh, houses of worship. Mm. We've, uh, how impressive is that? We've built churches. We, I think the first one we did was in Mozambique. Um, and that was, that was an interesting 10 or 12 days or whatever that was. Yes, that was great. I think, I think the highlight of that week building that house. Some of you may remember Brian Davies. He's, he's gone overseas now. <laughs> he came late and he, he worked hard and he worked hard with his vest on and, and eventually just couldn't work with his vest anymore. And <laughs> can I even say this? He, he, Kevin's kidding himself. His, his nipples started to, to blister. <laughs> And so we stuck duct tape on his nipples for the week. But we laid the slab in Mozambique. It was a huge one. We, we, did, we did another one in um, Botswana. I think Mike and I, I think that's the one that Mike and I went up to in the Friday night. And we, we dug a lot of the stuff. And then guys came in the next day and laid a foundation there. That church also remains standing. And then we, we were involved in one in just the other side of Isamangaliso wetlands. So we, we've been pretty good at building, building houses and houses of worship. We, we, we had a lot to do with building Emmanuel's church as well. Um, and that, that is still waiting for some repairs. But, you know, we, we do great. We build houses, we build houses of worship. We're, and as someone said so many years ago, they said to me, how cool is it that as a church you don't have your own church building, but you build church buildings for other people. And I'm like, yeah, that is cool. I quite like that. It would just be time to do another one. Uh, those are bringing good memories. Anyway, um, we're, 2 Samuel this morning. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to read about David's intentions on building and what ends up happening with um, with David and his building plans. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 from verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, 
This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I haven't dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place where the tent is my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of, of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, your kingdom, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Alright, so here's how the story starts off. It starts off with David settled. He's now in Jerusalem. He's in a palace. He's quite comfortable. Um, I'm sure he's got a feather bed. Everything's great. His enemies are by and large defeated. He's gotten rid of the Philistines and dealt with that threat. They're no longer going to be a threat for him. His uh, family issues are still a little bit way in the future. Right now, everything's wonderful. Everything is smooth. Everything is simple. He is settled, and I suspect he is bored. He's living in a very nice palace at the moment. It's made of cedar wood. I don't think that this means that he's living in a wooden, uh, in a wooden hut or a wooden cabin. I suspect it's a stone house, but paneled with cedar on the inside. And I believe cedar is a very nice wood, and it no doubt looks nice and even smells nice. And so David is living a life of ease and comfort right now, and with all the free time on his hands, he's got time to think about stuff and plot what, what to do next. Now, one of, the, one of the interesting things in those first three verses is, and it's not quite so clear in the NIV, but it's three times in three verses we read the king. It's not David, it's not David the shepherd of God's people, it's not even King David, it's the king. The king, the king. The king was settled. The king said to Nathan. Nathan said to the king. And there's just this sense of the king in his authority. The king who is ruling. The king who has established himself. The king looking over his subjects. The king who's in control. And the king who gets to issue decrees. And what is it that this king wants to do? Well, he wants to do, I think, a very noble thing. He thinks it'll be a very fine thing to build a house for God. 
And that does sound like a noble and good thing to do. And even the prophet Nathan thinks that this is a, a noble and good thing to do. After all, he says the king lives in a palace and God's living in a tent. We need to change that. And the change is not to say, therefore let the king go and live in a tent. Oh no, we're not going to bring the king down. What we're going to do is we're going to elevate God to my level. So that God gets a house of cedar just like my house of cedar. Because God and I were pals. And again, it's all well and good. And, and David's learned his lesson from the last time he had some harebrained scheme where he just went off and did his own thing. Remember, let, let's put God in a cart. That sounds like a good plan. This time, instead of just going ahead and doing his own thing, he says, let's, let, let's talk with the prophet first. Let's get, let's get Nathan's take on this. And Nathan the prophet says, yeah, good idea. Go build a, a, a house for God. That's kind of part one. The king will build a house for God. Part two, Nathan barely gets home. He hasn't even got his shoes off yet. And God says, you need to go back and speak to David. And what you need to say to him is, thanks, but no thanks. And one of the fun things that happens in those next couple of verses is that God doesn't say to Nathan, go back and speak to the king. Go back and have a word with the king. God says to Nathan, go and have a quiet word with my servant. And there's like three or four times in the next few verses that it's my servant, the shepherd, my servant. And I, I just, I think it's kind of amusing. I just wonder if it's a little bit of a taking David down a peg or two from the king to my servant. And yes, you've been installed as king of Israel, but don't forget who you are, David, my servant. So Nathan, go back to speak to my servant and let him know what God says is this right you want to build a house for me <laughs> I've lived in a tent for 300 years you know why I've lived in a tent for 300 years because for 300 years in that tent I can move around amongst the people of Israel and I can be wherever they are I'm not restricted to one place and you know what, David? I've never said to anyone, not Moses, not Joshua, not Samson. Uh, no, I haven't said to anyone, hey, build me a proper house. I've been quite happy to live in a tent. And in fact, that's exactly what God says. He says, the tent is my dwelling. I want to read a bit on camping this morning. It's got very little to do with the sermon, but it's funny. Um, Kevin DeYoung great guy. Anyway, he says this, and, and, and I'm with him on this. I've never understood the attraction of camping. Although I have plenty of friends and relatives who are avid campers, it's always seemed strange to me that someone would hard, work hard all year so that they can go and live outside for a week. I get the togetherness stuff, but why do it in tents with communal toilets? As an adventure, I sort of understand camping. You strap a pack on your back and you go hiking God's creation. But packing up the van, like Noah's Ark, and driving to an mosquito-infested campground where you reconstitute an inconvenient version of your kitchen and bedroom just doesn't make sense. <coughs> Who decided that vacation should be like normal life, only harder? <laughs> This is appropriate. Every year our church advertises family camp. Every year my wife wants to go. 
Every year, we surprisingly end up in some other state during our church's allotted week. <laughs> as best as I can tell, the appeal of family camp is that the kids, unbothered by parental involvement, run around free and dirty, sun up to sundown, a sort of Lord of the Flies for little waterfallians. And as appealing as it sounds to have absentee offspring and downtime with my friends, there must be a cleaner, less humid way to export the children for a week. And even if the kids have a great time and the weather holds up and no one needs stitches and the 17th hot dog tastes as good as the first, it will still be difficult to get all the sand out of my books. Yeah. I know that there are a lot of die-hard campers in the world. I don't fault your hobby. It's just not my thing. I didn't grow up camping. My family wasn't what you'd call outdoorsy. We weren't against the outdoors or anything. We often saw it through our windows. <laughs> and walked through it on the way to the shops. But we never once went camping. We didn't own a tent, an RV, a fifth wheel, no one hunted, no one fished. Even our grill was inside. I, I kind of concur. And I know that you know Damon and Joe are living in a tent this week. And um, uh, Matthew and Yanin are living in a tent this week. And John and Cheryl have just spent three months living in a glorified tent on wheels. Um, I get it. But, you know, here's God saying, I'm happy to live in a tent. Like, really? Really? Why, why is God happy with a tent? A, a tabernacle, why is he happy to make that his home? I mean, doesn't God have heaven? Doesn't that sound better? Doesn't, doesn't heaven at least have decent paving? I read that somewhere. Surely heaven's got better amenities than a tent in the desert? With whinging Israelites complaining all around you? Wouldn't it be better in heaven surrounded by angels singing your praise? And then for that tent to be stored in some guy called Abinadab's back garden for 50 years? Is that really what God wants? And God's like, yep, I'm happy to live in a tent. No wonder David wants to build him a house. If I'd been living in a tent and someone said, can I build you a house? If I go camping for a week in a tent and someone says, would you like to step into my chalet? I mean, for me, it's a no-brainer. But God says, I've been living in a tent. So, remember, just a little bit of last week, we talked about the ark last week. Well, it, it's that look back to Mount Sinai. There's God on Mount Sinai, thunder and lightning. People of Israel come to listen. God speaks, they run away. They say to Moses, you go and speak to him. We don't ever want to hear that voice again. It's too terrifying. Moses goes up on the mountain and God says to Moses, you'll be my people. I will be your God. And I long to live in your midst. What an amazing thought that God would want to live among his people. That God wants to, wants to be with them. I mean, process that thought, right? The God of the universe. The God who created galaxies. The God who, who, who created atoms. The God who came up with quantum. The God who made butterflies. And butterflies in your stomach. That same God wants to come and be with you. That same God wants to live in our midst. 
were talking about this this week with a couple of the guys. Just how mind-blowing that is that God wants to befriend us. And that part of what that means, I mean, if, if you're going to engage in a friendship with someone, that someone needs to kind of reveal a bit of himself to you in order for there to be friendship. You can only pursue the friendship as much as that person opens his heart, opens his mind, opens his thoughts to you. And that's what God wants to do with us. That God wants to come in our midst, among us, and open his heart to us. And share his thoughts with us. And he wants to do that with sinful, messed up, broken, weird you. And so he says to Moses, here's how we're going to do this. You're going to get out your sewing kit. You're going to make me a tent. And I'm going to come down from the mountain. And I'm going to actually live among you. And that tent is pitched and the presence of God fills the tent. So much so that the people can't get in. Even Moses can't get in to the presence of God. And God says, I'm coming down to you. And I'm going to live in the midst of this sniveling, whimpering, whining, complaining group of people called Israel in the desert. And God says, well David then kind of repeats this back to God in his prayer that I read earlier. Where God says, actually I didn't, it is what God says to him. I have been with you. That, that but you know, I took you out of the, out of the, 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 sheep, the sheep pasture. I've taken you out of that, and I have been with you. That's what this has been about. I've taken you, I've made you the shepherd of Israel, and I've been with you every step of the way. That God, again, God wants to be with His people. And then there's this wonderful promise in there of, I will plant my people. And then He says, and I'm going to give them a house. I'm going to give them a home of their own. And so you see what God's doing, right? David's like, I'm going to build God a house. And God says, no, no, you've got that the wrong way around. I'm going to build a house for my people. You want to build me a house? It's backwards. I'm building you a house. That's what's going on. I'm going to build the people of Israel a home. It's kind of what we all want. Not just a house, but a home. And there's a difference between a house and a home, right? A home, and, and, and God uses some of, these, some of the words here that kind of express it nicely. A home is a place where you're not disturbed. At least that's the intention, right? But you want to come home from a busy day of work, and you want to sit on the couch, and you want to put your feet up, and you need your husband to come and massage your feet, and give you a little cup of tea or something a little stronger uh, depending on how bad the day has been and what you don't want is the kids running in disturbing you that i mean that that's a home right a place where you're not disturbed a home is a place where the where the wicked won't oppress you i mean that that happens in the office right your boss oppresses you you don't want that in your home you don't want your wife oppressing you 
in your home. A bit of a tangent here. We, we're all exiles. Kind of the storyline of the Bible. That God makes Adam and Eve, puts him in the garden, and essentially says, this is your home. This is the place where you're at rest. This is the place where you're at peace. This is where, this is where, 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 where stuff happens, where joy and contentment and fulfillment, everything that you've been looking for happens in the garden. It's wonderful. And Adam and Eve are at home and at peace and at rest, and they're not oppressed, and they're not, uh, what was the other word? They're not disturbed. It's wonderful. And then they have to leave the garden. And they're not just leaving a garden, they're leaving home. And they become exiles. And they're now forced to try and make a living outside of home. And now they're in the world, in the wilderness of thorns and thistles. And they're trying to find their peace and contentment and satisfaction. They're in a place where there is oppression and where they're fighting a very real enemy. And the longing is just to be at home. And I think, I think we get that. I hope we kind of get that, that. That we do feel the spiritual inner kind of dis, discontent and this, this break. We, we are exiles in this world. And as much as we pursue stuff, there's, there's never that fullness of peace and satisfaction and, 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 and meaning and purpose. The things that we want to find in our home. We're exiles and refugees longing to go home. Brian, you spent two months in Romania with exiles from Ukraine. And even though these exiles, these refugees from Ukraine had been there for about six or seven months, and even though they were relatively settled, there was within them a constant longing to go home. And so there was, none of them had any intention to settle in Romania. We're not going to bother to learn the language. We're not going to bother to, to establish ourselves in a, in a significant job because we're just, we, we just want to go home. And we all like that to some extent. We just want to go home. Where we can put up our feet and see nature through the window. Not be disturbed by the wasps and the bees and the ants and whatever else. And that's the story of Israel. The story of nomads and wanderers and exiles. From Abraham to David, the people of Israel are wandering from place to place with no place to call their home. No place where they're settled. And even in the days of the judges, when they're finally entering into the promised land, even under the days of Saul, they're, they're kind of in the land, but it's not home. Because the enemy is still in the land. And, and, and they're, they're surrounded and oppressed and having to deal with, with battles on every side. And God says to David, I've brought you home. I will give you rest from your enemies. It's one of those great recurring themes of the Bible of rest. Rest. Rest for your souls. So here's David saying, God, I'll build you a house. And God says, hang on, I'm giving Israel, my people, a home. Almost as though God is saying to David, you've got this the wrong way around. I'm not just going to give my people a house to live in. I'm going to give them a home to call their own. 
not just a nice house with Italian tiles throughout, and some of you have been in those kind of houses, you may even live in those kind of houses, where it's all wonderful and groovy, but there's bitterness and envy and anger and strife that bleeds out of every wall. It's a house, not much of a home. And God promises to these people a home for their exiles. But God doesn't just promise, I'm going to build a house for my people Israel. So David's like, I'm going to build a house for God. God says, no, no, I'm going to build a house for my people Israel. And I'm not just going to build a house for my people Israel, David. I'm going to build a house for you as well. I'm going to build a house for you. And I can imagine David going, I already have a house. Hiram built me a house. The king of Tyre. I don't need you to build me a house, God. Hiram, the king of Tyre, already built me one. Look at it. Isn't it fantastic? It's got cedar. What do I need? A, a holiday home? Is that what you're planning on building? A holiday home on the edge of the Mediterranean? The nice news? And of course what God is saying is, I'm going to build you a dynasty. And we still talk of, it, talk of things like that. We, we talk that the, the British royal family are called the house of Windsor. Right? So we still talk in, in the, in those, along those lines. So, so God is saying to David, look, I'm not going to build you an actual house. I'm going to create a dynasty through you. And the the descendant of you, there will always be a descendant of you who sits on the throne and rules. Now what, what's interesting is that about 40 years after this, 40, 50 years after this, the kingdom of Israel goes through a civil war and they divide in two. And the rest of the Old Testament kind of gets complicated as to which king is part of which kingdom. And you've got the northern kingdom, which is confusingly called Israel, and the southern kingdom with its capital of Jerusalem that is called Judah. And, and in the northern kingdom, what ends up happening is that you have the succession of dynasties. A king sets himself up, and his kid rules, and then it passes on to the grandkids. But at some point, a coup happens, and the entire royal family is wiped out, and another dynasty, another ruling family steps in, and they rule for two, three, four generations. And then there's a coup, and they all get wiped out, and another lot rule. And so, in the northern kingdom of Israel, there's just a cycle of different dynasties that rule. In the southern kingdom of Judah, the, the, the kingship, is that the right word? Passes from generation to generation in one family. And right from the days of David, right to the exile, and even beyond the exile when they come back, there remains a king of the descendants of David. Now, in the northern kingdom, there is simply not ever a good king. There is never a king that worships and follows God. Every single one of them are dreadful. Every single one of them worship idols and turn their back on God. But in the southern kingdom, there are some, not many, but some, that do turn back to God. And so when God talks about... Um, you know, discipline with a rod and the, and the floggings inflicted by men. He's talking about how from time to time he will discipline the kings of the southern kingdom and bring them back to him. And so God says, I'm going to establish this family. And God says to David, by the way, your son is the one who will build a temple for me. He can build a house for me. But we'll wait till then because right now it's about me building a house for you. But in that, you've got to see, right, that there is a hint of something deeper. Because God says, your kingdom, the kingdom of this house, will be forever. 
And forever is a long time. And when you look back in the history books, it doesn't seem to be forever. Because the exile comes, and there's a break, and there's descendants of David, but they're not ruling. And then when they come back from exile, they are kind of, they're more governors than kings. And they kind of rule on behalf of the Babylonians and Persians and Greeks and whoever else that come along. And eventually, the line of David kind of dwindles. And you're like, so where's this promise of the eternal kingdom? And of course, there are some who still today are waiting for the, the hidden son of David to emerge and to be able to say, look, I've kept a record of the family tree and here I am. I'm the king of Israel. But of course, I think... Right? We know that there is something bigger going on here. That the actual son of David, David's greatest son, Jesus, was born and rules forever. And that his kingdom is far bigger than any kingdom that David could ever have imagined. And his throne is far more significant than any throne that David could have had. There is a greater king and a greater kingdom. And that king and his kingdom will never come to an end. So how does some of this then kind of apply to us? David wants to build God a house because God can't be happy in a tent. God wants to be among his people, so should we buy a tent as a church? Set it up every Sunday morning. We could do that. Is that the application here? Uh, should we be a little bit more like David and saying, we're okay in a school hall, but there's no way God is happy in this place. I mean, look at it. Just, just look around. I know, all right? I mean, beautiful photographs in the back wall there. Um, those fans that buzz every Sunday morning. Not the greatest curtains. The floor and these seats. They're just wonderful, aren't they? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what's being spoken to us, is that we need to build a cathedral. All in favor, stained glass windows, yeah, let's do that, yeah. And cedar walls, yep, yeah, cedar paneling. A big proper pulpit for the pastor, one where he ascends the stairs. And yeah. I don't think that's the point. God says I'm happy in a tent. He says, your son will build a proper temple for me. And then Jesus comes. And in John chapter 1, John says, he tabernacled among us. Or he tented among us. He pitched his tent in our midst. He lived among us. So, so start putting all of this together, right? So there's God in the mountain, fear and trembling of the people, the desire of God to be amongst His people, the longing of God to befriend us and to open His heart to us, the idea that God would live in a tent and Jesus comes and clothes Himself in a tent, as it were. And finally, God actually really does live amongst His people. And His people see Him. And he's revealed himself to them in ways that David could never imagine. God's not restricted to a building. He's not even restricted to a tent. But for a while, God walks around on two legs. 
And he touches the broken and the diseased. And he embraces the hurt and the abused. And he reaches out to the marginalized and the misunderstood. And he, he embraces the sinner. The very people who ran away from the mountain saying, we can't come closer, we'll be vaporized. Those same people Jesus reaches out to and embraces and draws in and calls his own and reveals himself to them. The same people who, who at one stage at best could hope to catch a glimpse of that tent over there are now embraced by God enfleshed. David wants to put God in a building and God wants to put himself in a body. And John says, we have seen him and we have touched him. And Hebrew says he is the exact radiance of God's glory. He is the exact radiance of God's very being, his very essence on display, all revealed in Jesus We can't come to him. We can't get to the mountain. We can't climb the mountain. We can't even step into the tent. And so he comes to us. And he comes to you. And I know you, you, we're all like, yeah, but not like with John, right? John could actually touch him and John could actually see him and I don't. And yet... Questions asked every now and then. What would those original 12 disciples have preferred? To see and touch Jesus over there? Or to know that God lives within them by His Spirit? And Jesus comes to you. In the hurt, in the brokenness, in the dirt, in the sin and he steps into your brokenness and as he did with David he says to you I have taken you out of the sheep pasture I have been with you not just I will be with you I have been and I know some of us look back and go I didn't see you there last week you seem to be kind of anonymous wasn't so, so aware of you. And even if we're not aware of him, he has been aware of us. And even in those moments when we go, I don't know if he was there. I didn't see him. He was there. It's his promise. I have been with you. And he promises you a home. Not just a house in heaven. And I'm not suggesting that he's promising you and you should claim a house in Cotswold Downs either. I'm not going there. I, I, I know it's kind of easy for us as you know, people that we are to sometimes just con continue conceptualizing God as this guy who has prepared a place for us. After all, Jesus says that, right? I'm going on ahead of you. I'm preparing a house for you. My father's house. There's many rooms. There's many mansions. And, and, and that is certainly true. And there certainly is one day home. 
But our faith is about more than just what will happen to us one day. Because I think Jesus even now invites us in from exile. We who are lost and wandering, oppressed by our enemies. And no, that's not the Muslims. The Muslims are not our enemies. The atheists are not our enemies. Those godless, nasty sinners. We're oppressed by our enemies of sin and Satan and our own flesh. Those are the things that lead us into exile. Those are the things that drive us far from home. Those are the things that put us under the heel of the wicked. And those are the things that deprive us of our peace. And Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. To bring you in from exile... And to find here and now the peace of soul that only He can bring and only He can offer. Because our souls are restless. Our old souls are empty. Many people live a soulless existence. We're exiled from ourselves. We isolate ourselves. And God says, I'm bringing you home. I'm bringing you in. And yes, is the future promise of eternal home. But even here and now, he invites us to come in out of the cold and find in Him a place where we're not disturbed. A place where the enemy cannot oppress. And I know, some of you are saying, I'm not experiencing that. My house is not a refuge. <laughs> it's certainly not. The enemy has moved right in here. I'm very disturbed and I'm under the whip. I'm not seeing much of this whole, you know, uh, called home from exile. But let me just read some of that prayer of David again. Verse 23. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever and you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise that you have made concerning your servant and this house. Do as you have promised. Can I say that that passage is not just for ancient Israel, but it is for God's people. Who is like your people, the church, that gathering of people on earth whom God has redeemed out of slavery and sin, who has been established as God's people forever. You have become our God. And David says, now, O Lord, keep your promises. Do as you have promised. And so to those of us who find that the enemy is still in the house, to those of us that find that peace is elusive, we can keep this prayer going as David has prayed. O Lord, do as you have promised. And yes, final victory will come one day when he returns. But until then, we may well spend every day Praying, oh Lord, do as you have promised.
Who am I, O Lord? Who am I that you have brought me this far? Is this, is this your usual way of dealing with people? Who am I that you would consider me? What am I that God would choose to dwell in me? Why would he choose to reveal himself to me? How could that be considered normal? That the God of the universe would do that. Surely the God of the universe has got bigger things on his mind than bringing me home. Surely he's got bigger things on his mind than revealing some of his thoughts with me. How humbling is that for me? For you? Because this is how God deals with you. You may not seem to be much, and, and you're not all that, and yet He comes. And His Son lays aside His majesty and clothes Himself in humility and frailty and steps into our mess and becomes an exile Himself. So that he can bring you home. For the sake of his word and his will, he will do this. Why don't you consider that this morning? That the God of the universe wants to be with you, wants to reveal himself to you, wants to make his home within you. Now, we could raise millions and build a cathedral, stained glass windows and gold plating and whatever else. And he would choose instead to live in you. And I know that for some of you, there's not a whole lot of peace right now. Keep praying that prayer. Oh Lord, do as you have promised. Let's pray. Who am I, O Sovereign Lord? What are these people that you have brought us this far? And if it's not enough that you brought us this far, you have even spoken about our future and promised a home for us. Is this how God deals with people? What more can we say? For the sake of your word, your will, you have done this. Not for our sake, but for yours. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you. And who is like your church? That you would go and redeem a people for yourself. That you would perform great wonders by driving the idols from our hearts. That you would redeem us from our slavery to sin. That you would establish us as your people. And that you would become our God. 
O Lord, fulfill your promise. Do as you have promised. That people will say, there is a God and he loves his people. Lord, your words are trustworthy. You have promised good things to us. Lord, bless your church. Lord, bless your kingdom. Lord, glorify your King. Amen. Can we sing again in closing? Let's sing the splendor of our king.